KZSU Stanford University's FM radio station broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast. Features one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainable leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architect aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Stephen. Our guest today, so happy to have her, Susan Jones, FAIA, I always love that, and founder of uh, Atelier Jones. Susan's firm seeks out sites, buildings, and materials with inherent but underutilized value to harvest their embodied energy, their catalytic power for owners and communities, as well as their beauty. Her work creates delight and wonder in leftover, dirty, <laughs> forgotten places and spaces and materials uh, while creating new uses in an innovative and beautiful way. Susan's also forged this cross-disciplinary approach through embracing methodologies, mind from sustainability and materials research from historic preservation and adaptation adaptive reuse movements, real estate development, as well as community activism. For more information, fee, please feel free to visit atelierjones.com. Again, that's A-T-E-L-I-E-R jones.com. Hello, Susan. We're honored and thrilled to have you on the Modern Architect Show today. Wow, Tom. You're like one of the first people that can actually spell Atelier Jones right. I'm really <laughs> impressed. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm really thrilled, thrilled to be here. Oh, we're really happy. And you know, we've started just even before we got going there. And I said, you know, this is such a raw, raw medium. And uh, you're familiar with radio. Share well, with us a bit how so you're so cool familiar. to be in a radio studio. I can't tell you guys because the last time I was in a radio studio, I was probably maybe 10 years old or something. But I spent a good part of my early life from like 5 to 10 in radio studios because my dad was ran a radio station. My mom ended up radi- running a radio station. And it was all started by my grandfather who ran started one of the first radio and TV stations in Bellingham, Washington, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. And so we've got radio in our blood and our family. And I'm really proud of my family, and it's a it's an exciting moment to be in a radio. Really, station again. yeah, because this isn't just like okay, you're doing an interview. This like I, I noticed before we got started, you were looking around at all the tracks and all the electronics. And well, you guys said this was built in 1964, and that was actually yeah. the era that I was in the radio stations in, and because it'd been quite a while, it was yeah. A lot of fun. Well, share with us a bit about that, because I think it's a wonderful segue. Is how did you feel going through, if you can recall, the radio stations as a, as a kid? Well, I mean, I was just a kid. So, and I see, you know, I see all the equipment, I see the spaces, I see the focus of the engineers that are really working on the sound equipment. And on, this was all really new cutting edge technology at the time. And uh, my grandfather was doing automated radio. And before that, I mean, he'd been a real pioneer. And I, I, I bring him up because I take inspiration from my grandfather uh, yeah. because of his work, uh, especially in the 30s when radio was really new and it was kind of the internet of the new of that time. And so he, you know, he, he, he had this problem because he didn't have access to the AP Newswire because they were only for newspapers. So what does he do being a feisty Irishman? He, you know, he, <laughs> he goes and puts a Supreme Court case together, which through, goes through the court system. And by 1936, he wins. And it's actually kind of a famous case. And it's written up in some law books about the importance of free speech and access to the press. And, you know, it's that kind of like passion for technology yeah. and passion for changing the world, if you want to, and then really implementing it at scale that spoke to me a lot when I was going through uh, my practice and especially in this journey on mass timber. Oh, share with us your experience. In ma- well, you know, let's go your, your years of being an architect. What inspired you to be an architect? If, you, if, you, if there's a galvanizing moment or moments that you can recall that like, you know what, 
you just you just kind of felt it. Well, when I, I mean, feeling it was was really young. I, I was probably five years old. Again, it must have been a really fertile five. time at five. That was the year. <laughs> <laughs> five. Five. I mean, my I, I didn't know I wanted to be an architect, but we we had the privilege really to build a, a, a small house for our family at age five, and we had an architect. He was from California. He went to San Luis Obispo, and he came out to Bellingham, and he was building us a, a house. And my dad, you know, got out there on the site and did the we're doing kind of design build work, you know, stuff that would be really hard to do. But he was one of my, this architect's first clients and it was really exciting. So coming alive and seeing all those spaces that were developed and being able to choose your bedroom. I was the oldest of three kids. And I mean, those issues of space and light and were really powerful uh, to me. And I, I just, I loved the process intuitively. And, you know, when I look back, that was probably the formative moment. <sighs> Superb. Share with us what we uh, talked about before when you came and you were excited to go to uh, Stanford and you thought you're ready to go. There's an architecture school. You're all j jazzed up and... And, wow, no major. So this was early oh. days. You know, this was like 1979. But, you know, and sure enough, there had been some architect majors in, at Stanford until 1975. And, you know, I was all excited about coming here. My mom had gone here and my aunt had gone here. So it was a known, you know, I'd visited here. It was a sweet school and we were super excited to get in but wow then I get here and there's no college counseling might I go to a public high school in Bellingham and I'd already paid my $25 acceptance so you know I couldn't take the $25 back and find out that oh wow there's no major so you know if I have one message to the the lovely undergrads at this at this fantastic school is if things don't quite work out the way you think they're going to work out they actually will work out just have a little patience and see the long view on it yeah but you didn't do feel that or understand that at that point. Oh boy, no, I thought my life was over. <laughs> I thought you... I had just completely blown it. Like I would never be an architect. Like it was just like, I couldn't major in it. And so what was I going to do? Really? So it really shut down? Yeah, it really did. And then I like, okay, I'm freaking out. And I'm like, what, how do I, how else do you study architecture? You know, do I have to tell my mother I have to get the $25 back or whatever? You know, that would be disastrous. Well, I love the reality of the triviality. And, and, and so I've discovered this thing called master's programs, which okay. I'd never heard of really. And so it turns out there is another degree you can do and you don't even have to have an undergraduate to go in to get your master's degree. So it was like, okay, I can just like put this dream on hold for a few years and you know, it took a little transition, I've got to say, but it, uh, I ended up being a philosophy major and a really, really happy one. It was a really great experience here yeah. at Stanford. Awesome. Go, let's go right into Mass Timber and your involvement. And you and feel free to, you know, segue back and, and, and forth. This is, there's not a real set program as we shared with you at the beginning of here. I'm just really happy to have you and love what you do and would love for you to share your experiences. Oh, very cool. Well, we met, Tom, at, yes. a, at a Mass Timber Symposium. At the Mass Timber Symposium in San Francisco, yeah. put on by uh, yeah. Sarah Clack. Yeah, yes. exactly. So it turns out, so seven years ago, we had the chance to build a house for our family in Seattle, and I really wanted the house, obviously, to be an expression of our design and of our, of our work and our very best work. But to also have it have a greater meaning than just a, an incredible art piece, family house for our family. And so looking around, there was a lot of sustainable technologies out there. And it's, it's an area that our firm is, as you can tell from our introduction, been working in for a long time as to how to make the best use of underutilized materials and sites and et cetera. So things, we looked at waste, we looked at uh, forgotten parts of buildings, including like rooftops. We looked at um, like contaminated sites, small sites in Seattle, unbuildable sites, quote unquote. We looked at buildings that needed to be renovated. And we've been working Working on this kind of area for, of expertise, biodiesel uh, waste, you know, from, from biogas and uh, bio waste, you know, French fry oil. Um, and so there's a whole lot of, you know, things that we'd been doing. And then we were about to start building this house and I discovered this material called mass timber, which granted it wasn't my discovery. It's been going on in Europe for 30 years. Um, but the U.S., interestingly, was kind of behind in this area. And we hadn't, as an industry, as a country, adopted it. Canada was starting to adopt it. There were a couple of plants in North America, but both in Canada. And I just realized, you know, this is a potentially really beautiful way to use wood. And remember, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so we build in wood all the time, and we're really used to it. But, you know, we love all those big pieces of mass timber that are big and gigantic and old and heavy timber from big ancient trees that 
we don't have anymore. Mm-hmm. And we can't, we don't want to cut them down if we do have them. We want to keep them in the forest and make keeping them doing good work in the forest there, sequestering our carbon for the future. So that's a big debate. And so at the same time, how do we live in, in environments that are made out of wood? And so really discovering this material, understanding it as a new, innovative way to use our incredible Pacific Northwest forests, and I'll include Northern California all the way down you know, to the Bay Area in that, in that sentence, um, all the way up to Alaska. There's an incredible forest trove on this continent in the Cascadia area, and how can we make the best use of that material? So that's how it took off. Awesome. How well-received has it been since you've been such an advocate? If you can go back and say, when I first got involved, and oh, share the story of your daughter as well. Like how you even became, you got to share that. Well, this is really sweet to be here, Tom. I got to say, it's my daughter's birthday. Uh, Happy um, birthday. Yeah, happy birthday to (laughs) Domenica. And uh, we came down here to visit her and happy birthday. And she's a freshman here. And so it's really exciting to see her flourishing and kind of settling in. I mean, she's only been on campus for about two months, but she's a a rock star and she's one of my biggest heroes. All right. Are you at liberty to share, you know, how, you know, that the point where should I get involved with some of the things you're involved with that really sound like they really like really catapulted to you well she was Domenica was really helpful to me because like the year 17 or something 2016 I was contacted by the American Institute of Architects to join this gigantic code committee which is run by the International Code Council and they were forming a new committee on whether they should allow and write codes for tall wood buildings and so these are mass timber buildings buildings that would go from eight stories or really seven stories all the way up to 18 stories. And today you can already, before even at that time in 2016, you could build with buildings of mass timber up to six stories, but you couldn't go any higher. And for this material to really make a difference in our issues with carbon and sequestering carbon and keeping our forests more sustainable, we really needed to scale this material. We needed to build up our uh, mass timber abilities to go higher on taller buildings. So the AIA had asked if I would join this committee. And, you know, I'm not a code expert. Like, I'm not one of those great technical experts on the codes. Sure, I use the codes all the time. I'm an architect. I do it all the time. But I'm not like one of those gurus that just knows all the ins and outs of the codes. And they said, no, we really want somebody who knows and is passionate about mass timber. So I was talking about it at the dinner table. And, you know, I'm just like, I don't want to do this. This is going to be so hard. It's all volunteer. I have to go to get on flights and sit in a lot of, you know, windowless conference rooms outside of O'Hare Airport. And, like, this is not what architects do. I'm not a code person. And she said something like, you know, Mommy, I I think that's really cool that you would be changing policy at a national level. I really am excited for Domenica because something that she's looking at right now is her major is potentially public policy, potentially human bio. and, And my son, Rogan, is also kind of wanting to incorporate public policy into his his own work. He's a sophomore at at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic in Troy. And it's really exciting to see these kids, and I don't think it's just our kids, but this generation understanding how urgent these questions of climate change are, questions of human need, in my son's case, uh, questions of education, in my daughter's case, and how do we create policy that makes an impact and not just reaching out to, you know, individuals that need help along the way, too. Yeah, that's super. And I say why it's super is a number of reasons, but one in particular is that imagine if you didn't get involved yeah, I mean, we all, have, like, I just think as adults, I mean, here we are in the prime, you know, of our lives. So we've got, we're like the generation that can take responsibility, but we can also do something about it. And if these, this awesome generation of kids that are freshmen and sophomores right now in our college system, if they don't have that inspiration and see adults stepping up and take making sacrifices to go do their part, like, what kind of hope are they? You know, what yeah. the, it's just, we had a lead the way and do our best in yeah. this fight, especially against climate change. Well, that's uh, one of the many reasons why I love having you on here is you set such a great example, Susan. And I'll touch on, I, I couldn't fill out all the papers, but the awards. Can you share with us, you know, the, the, the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation for the Natural Conservancy and the team for life cycle analysis about mouse timber? You won the award for that. 
I, we want, it was really cool to, the, the Nature Conservancy is doing fantastic work and the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation is helping fund that and we're also working with the University of Washington, Corum, the Forest Products Laboratory. It's an amazing grant that we were happy to be a part of. The Nature Conservancy is doing really visionary work on trying to make the link between the health of our forests, the use of mass timber in tall buildings, and the demand on the forests that those buildings will have, as well as looking at the offsets between the amount of carbon in the bill sequestered in the wood buildings versus the amount of carbon expended in the concrete and steel buildings. And that is kind of a complicated equation, but that life cycle analysis, which we're not doing, we're not LCA okay. experts, but we're doing the building modeling to support those LCA experts. And it was a really incredible opportunity to be able to win that to win that grant with Mark Wishney, the director of forests for the Nature Conservancy. He's a, you should have him on this program, but yeah. you know, he's a great guy. Excellent. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. We're talking today with Susan Jones, founder of Atelier Jones. For more information, feel free to visit atelierjones.com. That is A-T-E-L-I-E-R jones.com. Susan, if you're, uh, what recent projects are you working on, if you don't mind sharing? You don't have to name names if there's confidentiality, but I'd love to hear some of the unique and challenging uh, projects that you're recently doing. Well, one of the things that I'm really excited about is scaling our practice up. We have a fairly small uh, uh, practice, and we've been around in Seattle for about 15 years. We're a, a tight team of about four, four people. But because of this mass timber research and all the work that we've been doing over the last seven years... We are working on some really interesting, I would say, groundbreaking projects. And one of the ones I'm the most excited about is one that was through, um, it's for affordable workforce housing in Seattle on Capitol Hill there. It's going to be 114 units. It's going to be an eight-story mass timber building. And that's one of the first, uh, especially as a workforce housing project, it'll be one of the first in the country when we get it built in 2021. There's a couple of, uh, there's a really wonderful eight-story condominium building in Portland, Oregon that's already built uh, by Path Architecture called Carbon 12. But this would be one of the first affordable housing ones. And I'm really excited because the, the, the breakthroughs that we're able to use will utilize this new code system that we wrote that was just issued type 4. C, which is a technical definition of the actual code that it's using, and allows as much of possible all the wood to be exposed so that when you go into a, an apartment, you know, maybe it's a small 400-foot apartment for that somebody's renting, but you might have a wood ceiling and you might have some wood columns and wood beams. And it's a really beautiful biophilic material that has a warm smell and a warm look to it that really allows, you know, people to, to have a connection to nature. And that's something Thing I feel really important about. Yeah, I love it. So you're you're building using your own codes now. Yeah. What is that like? <laughs> it's pretty yeah. awesome. It's really exciting. And yeah. it's the, the reason we want a big grant from uh, a different grant from the USDA to do this work with uh, with Mass Timber. It's called a Wood Innovation Grant. And it's really a, a grant that is trying to push the envelope on building uh, awareness uh, of these newer wood products, innovation in wood. And uh, so we were able to work with this group and it's it's a fantastic team. Swinnerton Construction yes. is leading it, um, the construction of it. DCI, the structural engineers out of Portland. There'll be some announcements. I can't talk too much more, too much about it, but it's it's really an exciting project. Yeah. Now, did you? How do you do? You reach out to uh, the builders. Do they come to you? Does the city comes to you? How has it been? Say, let's say the last couple of years, because you're obviously this is your passion, specialty, and. Well, this is the cool thing about Mass Timber is that we're kind of a small community, uh, but it's national. And so we're pretty tight. Um, there's been a number of, of architects, engineers, contractors, policymakers, um, government officials that the U.S. Forest Service has really done a great job in leading this effort. 
So I would say there's a couple hundred folks nationally that really get this and have really invested tremendous amounts of time over the last five to seven years and have become innovators in this material. And for instance, we were, you know, we've built four projects now out of mass timber, small ones, granted a house, a couple little mm -hmm. schools and a church. But those are some of the first mass timber projects that were built in the U.S. And there's more and more coming online. And I think we have now, I've, we realized there was 650 projects under design and construction in the U.S., but that went from like 10 to 70 to 300 to 600. And so it's, it's on a huge... In what time frame, if you can recall? In like five years. It's really oh, going wow. fast. So, I, you know, if I have one word for the Stanford investment and innovation community, <laughs> it's like, check out Mass Timber people because Microsoft did, and they just built their Silicon Valley campus, 900,000 square feet of Mass Timber, and it just topped out a few months ago. And I haven't seen it, actually. I was really hoping to kind of check it out. But, and I believe that Google is doing, is using the same material. It's just some capacity and potentially Apple as well. Yeah, did you have, did you foresee this type of growth and this rapidly? It, it took it took me totally by surprise. I mean, I talked to the Microsoft developer of real estate about I don't know two or three years ago, and I had a great conversation with him to give him kind of the same talk yeah. I talked to you about. And then lo and behold, I hear like a year later they're building with it, and it's not because of our talk. I mean, he was just doing his due diligence, hearing a, oh, so learning you think, a lot of or you're stuff. Being modest. No, I'm. Yeah. I, I I don't think it was due to me okay. at all. But I think he came to me because he knew about it, and and it was really exciting that that, that nine hundred thousand. That's a that's a lot of square footage, almost a million square feet, and uh, it's just going faster and faster. So, with with that sort of rapid development, do you see it within the next five years maybe doubling? If not more so, it doubled last year. So it went from 300 to 600 deep buildings. So yeah, I don't see why it shouldn't maybe triple next year. You know? Yes, <laughs> yes. With, with that growth, uh, what are some of the challenges with it? Well, one of it's supply chain, and so okay. the, the the you know just getting all that material out. You can imagine when we were starting to do a couple of little projects, small projects, just in the last year, I was trying to get pricing out of some of these big suppliers, and it was really very hard because I was competing against Microsoft in Silicon Valley and guess who's going to win in that, oh, yeah. that one so that one didn't go over super well we didn't get that project for one for one thing but I think the supply chain is evening out we've got some real interesting players coming into that area Vaughan Brothers up in Washington State has just opened up uh, and then that's in addition to Smart Lamb in Montana D.R. Johnson in Southern Oregon Ferris in Southern in Central Oregon and then of course the Canadian suppliers Structure Lamb and Nordique as well as Exlam in Alabama. So that's a number. But then we have this big behemoth coming into the market that just opened up a month ago called Katera. Yeah, and they're, yeah, yeah. they're a big, um, well-funded um, tech company slash building company. And they just opened up a big factory in Spokane, Washington, and they're producing a lot of material. So I'm really optimistic that this dynamis dynamism of the supply chain is going to even out. Yeah. Is there pre predominantly West Coast projects or no it is nationwide it's, it's equally it's, it's internet it's it's well it's international but it's also east coast too in fact i would say about half of those 600 projects are east west of the or east of the mississippi which was kind of a surprise to me because i thought it was all about the pacific northwest yeah i would have but, too just perceptively yeah but you know maine and then they've got this supply chain coming down from quebec from nordique and there's a lot of interest in the northeast as well yeah so it definitely is in a tipping point now. It's in a total tipping point. It's yeah. we're right, and I think we're right before the tipping point. Like we're right at that. No edge. way, we're yeah. right before. Yeah, that. no, I think people. Oh. This is an exciting thing, especially when we talk. When we, you know, just I was down here and we get the Stanford Daily, and there's all these announcements about affordable housing funding by the gi the giants of the tech world. You know, Apple, Google. Who would have ever thought? And, and huh? Facebook, and so you know, all these literally billions of dollars going to affordable housing, and we've got this little eight story sustainable affordable housing project that's going to go ahead in mass timber and if we can figure out that that equation and make it super affordable like why wouldn't everybody build mass timber workforce housing up and down the west coast yeah i like that workforce housing is it that's a Mm, sounds like a bit of a tagline, but I, I, I get the understanding. Is it literally workforce? So a company that's close by has availability or schools? It could be. Utilities? It could be. It's okay. really for it's for the folks that work in our communities that are, you know, sometimes teachers and policemen and dental hygienists and, you know, have great jobs, but 
don't, can't necessarily afford a house in Silicon Valley or even in Seattle right now. And so they may be a little smaller, and but they're they're really comfortable and they're they're yeah. they're really a sweet and safe place to yeah. live. Yeah. How are the units? Share with us if you as much as you can use the theater of the mind, Susan. How are the units when you're actually when they're done? When they're yeah. Complete? So what's our, it feel like? Our vision is that there's as much connection to light and nature as possible, and that's where I'm really excited about the the the, the ceiling being mass timber. So you have this whole wooden ceiling that's just reflecting light and, and getting that warm kind of texture of the wood. And the wood, you know, has, it's, it's natural, right? So it checks a little bit and sometimes it pops and talks to you and does all these things. <laughs> really you does, can yeah. see some, some knots in there. Yeah. And you can see where the branches and the <laughs> grain goes around the branches and et cetera. And then other than that, it's a pretty simple unit, a studio typically, uh, about 400 square feet. And there's a small kitchen. There's a laundry unit that's down the, the hall in the in the main area, small bathroom, of course, shower, and some really just high quality, durable finishes in there, and then a big window at the end that has the connection to the street, which is, in our case is right outside and with some street trees. Yeah, I noticed a, a lot of what you described with this light. Light. Can you share with us the importance of light? Well, in projects and all your projects. I mean, I, I think this is the central motivator for me, Tom. When you think about the importance of what we can do as architects to create spaces that kind of transport you atmospherically and can create a feeling of sort of safety and security and beauty and uh, of connection to nature, connection to a broader set of values that are much bigger than yourself, and kind of get that sense of peace and calmness that you know some people might get from a spa or a yoga class or something but I'll say living in this 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 wooden house this our mass timber house up in Seattle that was one of the reasons I built it we lived in a very dense neighborhood a very like 100,000 vehicles going past the, the, the house outside all the time it was a condominium and townhouse and you know like Dominican Rogan grew up there and we lived there for 20 years and we loved it but to be able to provide them this kind of wooden box with uh, the light coming in from three different directions the tree outside I mean that's a huge luxury and it's a it's a beautiful experience to give to your to your kids and your family and so I'd like to give as much of that as possible to all sort of levels of our, of our group. Yeah, I noticed when you, you're speaking, uh, Susan, that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like beauty is really important to you and a lot of facets of life. Is it true or am I reaching? A no, okay. no, you're not reaching at all, okay. Tom. Yeah. <laughs> you okay. put your finger yeah, on sh- it. Yeah. Share why, you know, uh, if you can or if you want to even. Well, I, I think, sorry, I mean, I, I just, how many of us have walked into a forest or walked into a, you know, a stone cathedral, whether you're religious or not, or walked into a, an incredible mosque or something? You know, these beautiful eternal spaces from the natural to the built that they really speak to us as human beings. And it's just hard not to have your breath taken away by some of them. And I don't, you know, that's not, that's something every architect, my heroes like Alvar Aalto from Finland, he works with light like like paint, and it's always indirect. Say that again. He works, he works with light like paint, like a material, you know, like as like a separate thing. And he's always, he's really inspired me. The work of Louis Kahn, an American architect, has always really inspired me to really think about that relationship between light and material as the stuff of what we do as architects. Yeah, I like that. Take your breath away, and I notice on your your website and and even looking at your uh, your book, that there is a sense of, um, that sounds weird, but breathing in your work. Oh, that's really sweet. Well, I no, think that's I'm a high compliment, Tom. Well, well, good. I'm not meaning to compliment you, even though I mean it good. But but there's a, there's a livingness. There's an al- Okay, let me put this way. There's an aliveness with your work. And is that is that by design or... Are you conscious of it, or it's just a, I think a about style? That, I think about it every time. It, it's not a style, because it transcends style. Okay. Um, okay. It's really more thinking about the almost atmospheric qualities of spaces. And so, you know, we looked at this, this library that we did in our house, our master bedroom um, that we did in the house, have some vaulted ceilings. We're trying to play with the tectonics and the kind of the structural integrity of these panels, these new cross-laminated timber panel, timber 
cross laminated timber panels. And then, but especially I think in our CLT church, which is a super open, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter church, awesome in Bellevue, Washington, that I, it, it was really probably one of the most incredible projects I had a chance to, I've had a chance to work on. And, and that folded wall of 17 40 foot high panels that bring the indirect light from the sides and the top was an amazing experience to be able to work on. Let's touch back on that when you, you return. This is the Modern Architect of KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM. We're talking today with Susan Jones, architect and founder of Atelier Jones. For more information, you can visit atelierjones.com. Again, that's A-T-E-L-I-E-R jones.com. Susan, share with us the church the story that uh, I interrupted you with our break. No, not at all. I, I mean, this was an amazingly brave congregation, and they um, they chose to uproot their, their their church in the middle of downtown Bellevue. And so, you know, again, the context of Microsoft and Apple and Google were all around, and they had these three lots right on downtown in downtown Bellevue, and they said, you know, we really need to move and sell our property, and they did. To, three high-rises went up, so $30 million later. And and so the church had a little bit of capital. capital and so they were able to buy this this one of the ugliest buildings I have ever seen. It's a 1970s three-story stucco, con- stucco steel concrete ribbon window building. And they said, Susan, make us a place of awe out of this building. Oh, really? That was the description? That was that was their challenge to our firm. Make us a place of awe. Out of this out of, okay. ugly building. And and so, you know, like, how do you do that? And, and it was really an exciting challenge to just, we dismantled a corner, we pushed it out, we went up, and we created this big box of light. We're talking about the box, the box of light. Yeah, yeah, that box of light was amazing. And I mean, we were really careful, for, you know, to keep the sources of direct light concealed so that they became indirect sources of light. And we, we pushed the light up and out on the east and the west sides and above in these skylights. And we extended the apertures of the space so you didn't actually see the pane of glass and you didn't actually see the light coming in as a big streak of light. You saw it as a soft glow of light around these edges and then of course that changes over time and I think that's what you're really drawn to it because it changes in a moment to moment season to season day to day kind of atmosphere but the thing that was really exciting about that project also was the prefabricated quality of those panels and uh, you know technology is shaping our lives in so many ways and boy does this community understand the meaning of that more than anything here here at here in the bay area but you know as an architect we deal with contractors and contractors are kind of slow to change and sometimes it takes a lot to move that industry so when we talk about prefabrication it sounds like really kind of old stuff if you're in the tech industry, but in the construction industry and in design industry, sometimes it's still a new thing. So we're really embracing the prefabricated quality of these mass timber panels. And the exciting thing for us is that we as architects can design a building and then work with the engineer to engineer the panels that are required to build that building, and then work with the fabricator to actually engineer those individual panels and prefabricate their connections, and sometimes their HVAC connections and their structural connections, and make holes to and, and notches to work around existing beams, et cetera, and to cut them in ways that really are very unique to the space. So in this case, we wanted to make this wall of these 40-foot because these panels are eight feet by 40 feet. That's the way they're built. But instead of just having a wall of one, two, you know, 17, eight by 40s, we thought, well, what if we change the angles at the bottom, made them a little wider, changed the angles at the top, made them a little narrower, then tilted the whole wall so we had to have the top and the bottom angles of the sides cut a little bit. And what if, after all that, they were all different? So instead of, so we had sort of like 17 panels that kind of look the same, but not quite. And in fact, they weren't the same. In fact, not a single one of them was the same. And so when we, but this time when we go to our uh, our contractor and say, can you cut these, you know, mm-hmm. this way, the contractor doesn't say, oh, that's so hard and I have to my, change my saw and this is so expensive and, you know, what if that's going to be just be too much? The, the machines, they don't care whether it's 17 <laughs> degrees or yeah. 19 and a half degrees or 35 degrees. So when we put all these panels up together, they really change the quality of the light 
uh, oh my goodness. Backlog. So we made a whole bunch of models. We tested the light in them. And then it was really fun working with the contractor, the general, to put those up. When are you kidding? For site. our audience, are not able to see, but you're, feel free to go to Atelier Jones, A T E L I E R, Jones.com and see for yourself at Mass Timber. And you also, the, the book is also, if you feel free to look at as well, Mass Timber Design and Research. From Susan Jones, feel free to, if you're interested, to take a look as well to see these uh, beautiful. Oh my God, they're yeah. no, they're stunning. They, what's the transformation? If I'm getting transformed here, what's it like in person? Well, I, th- I don't know. I mean, I, 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 mean, you, I felt really talked super to transformed. <laughs> yeah, in a positive way, of course. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I can say is that the church has grown. Um, they, ha- they, like I said, they're a really open, welcoming community, and they know they have to change in a lot of ways. So that's one of the reasons they built this church. And so they've got these amazing uh, women ministers. I can't remember the names of the offhand, but they're just they're they're just on fire, and they're just like <laughs> I love how you said that. We're gonna have to replace the mic on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wow. I text you know friends once in a while. People will come in and like, oh, we want to see your building, Susan. So we go. And sometimes we go on a Sunday, and it's just this is an incredibly welcoming community that is really out to change the world and and i just applaud them greatly bellevue first congregational church in bellevue now it went from so in, a, in effect from worst to first in a kind of a way yeah yeah I so mean, you took the most ugliest building that is it one you've ever seen uh, no i mean the ugliest it's one, of the one but it's up there and, <laughs> and, and it's now it's now really important a beautiful space so share with us that that ability that you have to change a structure, a dwelling from something that uh, is beyond an eyesore into something that's uh, beyond beautiful? Wow, that's a really good question. I appreciate that you called it ability. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I I can't explain it. I mean, sometimes I've called it a a vision, and that sounds kind of woo-woo out there, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are times that I've woken up in the middle of the night and I just see a space that doesn't exist, but it's relative to a project. And I, I know where the space is. I know exactly where it is. I can draw it the next morning. I can draw it that night even. And it's in my head. And it's it's sometimes hard because it's like, well, it, it looks like this. And the client's looking at me like, well, what are you talking about, Susan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I draw it and, it, and it's like, well, it sort of looks like this, but it's even better than that. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> now you <laughs> oh, really sure. got them. Yeah, and so they're like, oh. so it's a really... I can't explain it, and I just am grateful that every once in a while it happens, and I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to work with the amazing clients that I have to be able to exercise that gift. Yeah. Can you share with us how your, you know, your, your experience with your clients and why they are kind of magnificent in that way? They are magnificent. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's amazing to think of people who, you know, people, people design buildings for lots of reasons or commission buildings. You know, they need a new house. They need a new church. They need a new university building. They need a new place. They need, you know, to a workforce housing project. And a lot of it is commercially based. And a lot of it is to use a project to be uh, a good for society, good for their organization, their company, but also sometimes as a commercial product to make money. And yet in all of that, there is a desire, I think, if you're going to build something and design something, there's a tremendous amount of capital outlay. It's not a it's not an, a small profession in any way. And so I think in all of us, we have the desire to do something that's larger than just that product. And as long as it can meet some of the other, maybe call it a commercial or financial objectives, uh, you know, there's really no reason why it can't also provide beauty and uh, a sense of peace and a sense of connectedness to our larger world, be it nature or um, or others. Yes. Uh, share with us a bit, you know, even how your, your family inspires you, because I know they mean a lot to you. And do you, you know, kind of include them in your work, even if they're not physically there to help you with your work, just from their insights and their... Yeah, uh, I mean, it's like it's it's every day. Their place in life. (laughs) It's every day. I mean, I I think I spoke a little bit earlier about my my kids and how proud I am of them. Yes, uh, you can share as much as you like. I love hearing. (laughs) I love hearing. I I don't want to embarrass them too much. You know, I don't want to embarrass them too much. They've got their. But they are a source of that inspiration because they're huge. uh, Can can we really do it alone? Like, if you thought about it, no. And and really, like one thing I would love to say to um, all of us is like 
we, we as a family, we took a big risk to build this house. And we, I remember walking onto the site. It's a super small lot, okay? So this lot for the CLT house is about 2,500 square feet. And that's the size of this, this half this building or yeah. a few of this, these rooms. And that's just the house. So, I mean, the lot. So then you go up and you say, well, I want to build a house. And, you know, we were already living in a 1,000 square feet in Seattle. So to go up to, you know, a larger house and... You know, there's plenty of really large houses in Seattle, but we went to 1500, and I remember the first, which is on two stories. So the first time we walked onto the site when the slab had been poured on the ground with my kids and Marco, my, my lovely husband, we walked there and we're like, did mommy make a mistake? This house is way too small. No This way. is not going to work. And here's some triangles, and it's like, this is super <laughs> tiny here. And, you know, luckily it all worked out, but it was, there was a real point, and I, I, I think this bigger point is really, you know, we, we all need to embrace some risk here and take a chances to kind of get ourselves out of this, this, this mess that we're in. And I'm talking more about climate change and anything else. But as we all know, we have a few challenges on our hands as a country. And I think really making the most impact you can make in your own backyard and bringing that out to scale to the larger level is really something that I just love to encourage our incredible undergraduates here on the campus to, Excellent. Uh, to do. Excellent. Can you touch again on that, embrace that risk? Because you're, you're talking about something, everyone has their own, whatever risk means to them. But share with us, you know, embracing that risk other than, you know, you did with your, your home, how you do that, how you embrace the risk. Because there's so many things now you're writing policy, you've got a book, um, you're definitely at the forefront. I know you're going to be um, gracious about it, but you're at the forefront of mass timber and, and the codes and everything involved with it. How do you embrace that risk and how do you not be so afraid of it? I, you know, it's also embracing the fear, Tom, uh, for me. Honestly, like, I don't think I'll ever not be totally afraid. And I, I think I just that's just kind of part of the, my DNA. And it, you work through it. You just, you just do it anyway. Like being courageous, I don't think is about, oh, I have no fear. It's actually, <laughs> I have fear and I'm still doing this. <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> That's great. No, no, we'll, we'll get it. That's you know, awesome. I mean, I, 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 you just go, you just kind of work, you keep going, yeah. you work through it. So like, I also, I really wanted to have some empathy with my clients. I mean, these are, these are big projects and no matter how small or how big the, the amount of time and effort and yes, financial capital that you're putting into those, those are big, those are big uh, undertakings. Yeah. And so, you know, our house was a fairly modest endeavor, but for us, it was really large. And, and so we had to, you know, face that point of like, do we say, do I say yes to this project or do I say no to this project? And I really have to congratulate my family and just, you know, <laughs> they, they sort of said, okay, mom, yeah, if you say it's going to be good you know looks kind of small to me but we'll go there with you and <laughs> thank you guys so it. much <laughs> i love it how about we even with clients because they have fears of their own yeah. and then how, is there is there a um this may sound simplistic but like a checklist that you go through yeah to make your comp your clients feel comfortable with the decisions that they're made they've made and they're going to make yeah, well, we see a lot of projects and, you know, after you've been doing this for well, some 25, 30 years like I have, you see a lot of clients go through a lot of different projects. And the exciting thing is for me is, is like, you know, you, you just, you, you hear the client talking and there's, you know, there's this and there's that and there's that and there's this and there's this and then they're ready. Mm -hmm. And then some of them are more ready than others, of course. <laughs> and so you kind of act as a guide or an advisor at all stages. And sometimes that means actually, you know, I, I'm trying to help them through the process. They want this, you know, is there actual, you know, are they ready for that? And do they have the, do they have the site, the control of the site? Do they have the financial control? Do they have the entitlements, the agreements with the cities? Do they have agreement among themselves, whether it's a husband and wife or, you know, an institutional agreement uh, or a series of partners and, sh and, and shareholders in a private company, do they have that momentum? And so there's a kind of a series of, of checklists that we talk about, and uh, we just really want to encourage them to have a good foundation because there's nothing worse than going down the path and spending a fair amount of money and getting things ready and then having it and not just go forward. You want everything you do with a client to be valuable and committed and forceful and come to good fruition in the end. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU 90.1 FM Stanford. We're talking today with Susan Jones, architect and founder of 
of Atelier Jones. For more information, you can visit atelierjones.com. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R jones.com. Susan, that, that checklist that you were talking about going through with your clients, how do you overcome some of the challenges in, in dealing and working with cities and counties, their personalities, and their in, that, that personality input into the projects? Well, that's a great question, Tom. I can tell you've done all these, these interviews a lot. You, you, you're definitely an aficionado. That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know... City officials are people, and they're not just cities. And the people that, that represent our cities and do some of the finest, hardest work that I think you could do in the whole design industry. And if you go in to uh, a city official and uh, to, into the mindset of a project that, yes, it's a private-owned land, and yes, it's a private-owned company, but you're in partnership in a way with the public realm. And this public planner official that's on the other side of the table from you is your partner in it. You're going to get a lot farther than going in there with you know folded arms and being grumpy and saying, oh, what's the city going to make me do now? It's going to cost a lot of extra money. You know? <laughs> and that attitude from the very beginning that, that the design officials are your partners on the design team is really critical. And I, especially with mass timber, because it is a relatively new material, and I found some of our biggest supporters and biggest comrades in arms, if you will, to be on the on the public official side. But I, I also, you know, have a lot of sympathy for what public officials do. They deal with the public, uh, their their concerns about our public realm, the way public dollars are being spent, um, and they deal with our public infrastructure, the way the building meets the street, the way a campus meets the street, the way the campus meets a city. And they're negotiating with the public officials that handle those transportation networks. And this whole realm is the realm of the public official who's saying yes or no to your project. And if you see your project in that broader context, you're going to be successful as long as you're working with those rules and, and really understanding the rules and, and, and negotiating in a strong way on behalf of your client. Yeah. Another thing I've noticed in, uh, in uh, your show today is, is uh, there's a focus on people. I know we're talking about structures and buildings and beauty and light, but there seems that seems there is a lot of uh, emphasis and focus on the person from your work. Oh, I don't know if that's, that's really again by design or or just my uh, observation from our your <laughs> show. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is a very male-dominated f- f- profession, and I don't want to get into gender too much. But you know, there is real warmth, and I just you know can only speak personally, but. I, you know, it's oftentimes that I'm the only woman in the, in the room and whether that's from the contracting side or the ownership side and that's changing slowly. It is. Share how you, how you've, uh, how it's changed, say like maybe in. Well, the cool thing you is, a year I mean, or two. Yeah, the cool thing I, it is should that, be you know, 50, but it's a year or two, okay? <laughs> right. Well, that's two of us. Yeah. That's two of us for sure. I mean, you know, going through school, getting your master's, you know, there was a third of us that were women. So there was plenty of women out there in our graduate school class. Uh, it was it was really well, you know, received. A couple of women professors, that's it, you know. And then so the numbers get, you know, drastically dwindled as you get out. And so, you know, maybe there's 13, I think maybe it's gone up to, 15 or 18 in the last recent years of of registered architects who are women in the profession. And that's a process of licensing that it takes three or four or five years to do after you get out of school. And then, you know, there's that period of, oh gosh, you know, maybe you're in your early 30s and you really would love to have kids. And and so the number tends to go down as Mm. you get into an older area. But I think we're making some real headway into that in understanding, you know, just the accomplishments of women around us. And there's a lot of attention nationally and you know, I feel very supported as as a woman in this profession, and I certainly have had a lot of mentors and incredible advocates for my success that I owe a lot to over my years. So, uh, it's an it's been a really exciting journey. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Uh, Susan, any, is there any other uh, well, a lot of things maybe, but things that you would like to share with your audience so that maybe we didn't touch on, even if it's a couple couple of, we have we have some time to share with your audience today that we may not have touched on. Oh, super sweet, Tom. Let's see. You know, one of the things that Atelier Jones is right in the midst of is we're recovering from the the great amount of work that we did on these codes. And I mean, recovering as a small firm. And so the Nature Conservancy work that we did with uh, Mark Wishney, as I mentioned earlier in the show, 
it was a real eye-opener for me. And it showed me that we can both have sustainable forestry, replant our forests in sustainable ways, uh, and yet do that by harvesting some of the smaller diameter timber that would normally sometimes otherwise be wasted and go make mass timber panels and sequester the carbon that was in those trees into the panels themselves, which then we build our buildings with. So that's a complicated carbon equation, but that's a really important thing for our efforts against um, saving, about uh, sequestering carbon <coughs> to fight against climate change. And Wishney's you know, numbers are, if we do this right, that's a big if, 37% of the carbon emissions through 2030 can be absorbed through natural climate solutions 95 of which 37%? Uh-huh. And 95% of those are forests, with a capital F, so not agriculture necessarily, not ponds, not streams, not et cetera, but forests. And if we do that right, we can sequester that large amount of carbon, which is a really exciting thing, except that to do that right, we have to like plant all of Western Europe with forests. So <laughs> okay. we're probably not going to be doing that anytime okay. soon. And the only other way to do it is to pull some some trees, the smaller trees, especially out of the forest, plant new trees. And as we pull those smaller trees out of the forest, we build buildings with them and we sequester that carbon. And we hold it in as mass panels, hmm. mass timber panels in our buildings. The point of all that is that we have to also do that fast. And we have to do this manage the forests and manage and put sequester that carbon in our in our buildings and we need to build as many larger mass timber buildings as possible to be able to do that a fast and that's where atelier jones's goals have slightly shifted over the last really just even two years since we finished the codes we can build taller we know how to build we're informed about it and the goal is now to build to grow our firm grow our practice and to build um more mass timber buildings to help sequester that carbon. Outstanding. I like to think that we're not doing, we're not building buildings anymore. We're designing carbon banks. <laughs> we're banking that carbon away. Oh, interesting. Share with us how, how you came about that. Uh, oh, it's not original. I think yeah. that was Mark Wishney's term. <laughs> no, but what it means to you, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, in the beginning, we, we really see our practice as uh, having a larger meaning beside, beyond only the design uh, and work that we do. And so when we think about designing buildings, if, you, if they're building as a mass timber wood pieces elements, we can also sequester carbon in those panels that comes directly out of the forest. And those become the walls and the ceilings and the floors and the roofs. And that's sequestering the carbon um, for the long run, which then is kind of like banking that carbon away. Or sometimes some people call it carbon sinks, but we're holding that carbon for a long, long time in good places and not releasing it into the atmosphere and contributing to our, our, our own issues of climate change. Susan, it's been a real honor and a pl pleasure, joy, and everything great having you here. Thank you so much. It's been really awesome yeah. to be here, Tom. I can't believe here I'm here on the Stanford campus. It's super fun. You are definitely here, <laughs> and Thank we are you. grateful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Susan Jones, architect and founder of Atelier Jones. The firm Atelier Jones seeks out sites, buildings, and materials with inherent but underutilized value to harvest their embodied energy, their catalytic power for owners, communities, and their beauty. Susan's work creates delight and wonder in leftover, dirty, forgotten places and spaces, and she makes them beautiful, creating new uses and innovation, and of course, again, in beautiful ways. For more information, feel free to visit atelierjones.com. Again, atelierjones.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at KZSU Studios at Stanford University in Stanford, California. Today, the recording engineer is Stephen A. Blanton. The chief engineer is Mark Lawrence. And we're all assisted by Lexi Elan. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us by email, it is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. 
Again, it is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu.